Welcome. You are listening to Sex, Love, Joy, an interview series hosted by me, Anaim Bjorkvist, in which special guests reveal intimate details about how they connect the dots between sex, love, joy while actively pursuing their dreams. On today's show, I have with me bilingual consultant, speaker, and sexuality educator, Iva Mandule. We talk about how growing up in Puerto Rico shaped and influenced the development of her sexuality. Ida shares how her parents provided education and support around the topics of puberty and anatomy, but not the dynamics of sex and how she got that information from digital spaces. Ida talks about how important representation is so that we all can dream and move the generations forward. She shares how speaking her truth gives her peace of mind and the things that she's craving. Ida also talks about how body love is about asking, what are the messages we are sending out about bodies and reframing those? Enjoy. Hi, Ida. Thanks for being on Sex of Joy. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you've been doing this work for several years now. Share with the listeners your evolution of your work in the field of sexuality. Yeah, so I started with LGBTQ activism. I wasn't doing sexuality education from the get-go. Um, but when I went to college, I came from Puerto Rico, went to Brown University in Providence, and I started getting immediately involved with the Queer Alliance and some of the student groups that were doing advocacy and event planning and all of that back in 2007. And so while I was still in college, I started realizing that not only was it important to do all these events and support groups and all of that, but that a lot of people in the queer community at Brown and elsewhere just also had this big gap in terms of resources that were accurate and relevant in terms of sexuality. And as someone who didn't really have much of a, like sexual life while she was in Puerto Rico, college was really the place where that all came to flourish. And so I was like, well, I want resources for me. And I know that people also need resources in these communities that I'm a part of. So let's start making that happen. And so I got more involved with sexuality education specifically. And I um, also started working in a high school doing some volunteering in terms of teaching youth sex ed. And after that, uh, and a lot of a lot of sleepless nights in college, as you know, college students will do. Um, I graduated and started working in two fields that I really never thought I would be working in. I started doing domestic violence work and HIV prevention. Wow. Uh, two two things that I was like, nah, there's too many people already doing this. I'm not going to get involved in that. And the world has a funny way of placing you in unexpected places. So I ended up doing that and um, working with the Center for Sexual Pleasure and Health for years now since it opened, first as an intern, then as a staff member. So overall, it all came from LGBTQ rights activism, and it sort of has morphed in a lot of different permutations. Um, and right now, I'm really focused on getting my master's in social work in Boston but also still, you know, juggling all these other projects at the same time. So balance is the key word, hard to achieve. How did grow, growing up in Puerto Rico, because I know for, for my growing up, you know, Cuban in South Florida, it was like, you know, girls aren't supposed to talk about sex and we're not supposed to have sex. So how did that influence and shape your own sexuality? So I grew up in Puerto Rico to a Puerto Rican sort of maternal side. My dad and his family were all Cuban. 
um, who came, you know, from Cuba after Fidel took power. And it was interesting because we also were part of the Jehovah's Witness faith, which is a super, super conservative Christian religion. Um, And so I was part of that. And that definitely influenced a lot. But it was interesting. My family really believed in the power of education in general, not just about sex. So they believed that school was really important. Like your job was to get good grades, regardless of gender. Um, And that was a real big thing. I was very into the academic stuff I was doing when I was younger. And they were really interested in, you know, giving me answers to the things I was asking. So if I ever asked about periods, like all those things were spoken of. It wow. wasn't, it wasn't hush hush. And it wasn't like, Oh, let your mom talk about to you about it. You know, my dad, <laughs> I remember my dad doing a diagram of a uterus and how the period worked and all of that. What? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is great. And I get it. Like you did this perfect drawing. This is fantastic. Um, but when it came down to actual, sexuality, orientation, Mm -hmm. sexual experiences, that's when it got trickier. So in terms of puberty and anatomy, they were, they were completely fabulous with that, but not so much with the mechanics of it beyond a very heteronormative male, female sort of paradigm. Yeah. Um, So that really, (laughs) I had to discover on my own explore it by myself. And honestly, a lot of that education came from the internet. So I had friends online and I talked to them about the things that I didn't talk to my peers in school about, um, cause I also went to a very small school. So everyone knew each other. Everyone had been in grade school together and it's, it was a very like small environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, it was it was interesting because the interplay of religion was also part of that. So under the Jehovah's Witness faith, dating is not encouraged one on one. You have to go on group dates. The purpose of dating is marriage. And I think a lot of that is part of the cultural consciousness in the U.S. in general. Mm-hmm. But it was very, very specific and um, more highly valued and very directly important Versus in, I think, normal, uh, like non and, and not to say that it's not, you know, normal, but uh, non-religious U.S. culture or maybe Catholic U.S. culture where some of those things are valued, but it's still not as pressured um, with Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a very, very, very important piece, especially because Jehovah's Witnesses are a minority religion. It's not like there are a ton of Jehovah's Witnesses out there comparatively, especially in Latin America. Yeah. Um, so there was this air of we need to preserve our people and we need to really defend ourselves because we have beliefs that not everyone agrees with. Yeah. What's the importance of women of color seeing women that look like them and that they can relate to them in regards to race leading the conversations in the field of sexuality? I think a big part of it is just the importance of representation in general and how representation can lead to people feeling empowered to pursue a path that maybe they didn't think was possible before. And we've seen this, you know, not just in the field of sexuality, but just in, you know, seeing women of color in films, in, you know, Disney and all these different places and books. If you see someone that looks like you or if you see someone that shares your heritage or your culture, it gives a bridge that you can maybe use later on when you need to. Or if, you know, if you're a child and you see someone that looks like you on TV, 
maybe I can be on TV one day, or maybe I can do what this person is doing. I think it gives permission. It gives permission to dream. It gives permission to hope and aspire to things. Having a dream is going to be very instrumental in helping move people forward. And just additionally, I think that having women of color in these spaces brings attention to inequalities that women of color face that sometimes don't get brought up unless women of color are there rallying around it, Mm -hmm. Um, which is unfortunate. I think everyone should really be bringing these issues to light, bringing up issues of racism, bringing up issues of colorism. But unfortunately, a lot of people, if they're in the privileged class or if they're sort of on the privileged side of a struggle, they're not always going to automatically think of those things or they're not automatically going to put it front and center. So it falls to the women of color to do that work. Um, so I think that having us there is critical to have those conversations, but also to, to move the, you know, move the generations forward and have more people coming in after us. Cause it's, it's supposed to be in my mind, an intergenerational effort. It's yeah. not just about me or my colleagues. Now it's about who are the people that are going to come after us. That's why mentoring I think is also a big piece of why the women of color sexual health network is, is such a cool project and such a cool organization. Cause it doesn't, just want to talk to the same old people. It doesn't want to just talk to the people at the top. It wants to foster new people coming into the field. It wants to create community and it wants to really focus a lot on youth too and kind of look at it from a whole lifetime perspective, not just a very small snapshot of the time span that we have here on earth. Yeah. And everyone that I've seen, the interactions in that group, it's not about how can I help myself? It's how can we help one another? You're quite brave and you're not afraid to speak your truth. What have you gained from speaking your truth? Peace of mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I don't like having to hold secrets. I don't like having to fake things. And part of that definitely comes from fear. Uh, I fear that if I have to hold secrets or if I have to hide parts of who I am, that it'll come bite me in the butt sooner or later. (laughs) And fortunately, I've been in a position where I have been able to speak my truth. I've been able to be open with employers about the kind of work that I do, the kind of causes that I fight for, the fact that I will go to protests and stay up there till like two in the morning if I have to. (laughs) And it hasn't been a problem thus far. And, you know, it has come with its challenges. Of course, that has happened. But I've been lucky enough to be able to speak that truth and live very honestly. And part of that is important, again, not just because of the peace of mind, but because I want to show other people that there are ways of living that are maybe not the ways that they were taught. And there are ways of expressing oneself and finding a place in the world professionally that were not in the career fair when you were in like ninth grade. So (laughs) it's been, again, it's been a, the theme of it for me has been, how do I show other people what opportunities exist? How can I show people what other possibilities there are? And that's just been kind of a recurring theme in my life, not just with my sexuality work, but I think very particularly with sexuality where we get ingrained with beliefs very early on about what gender is, what sex is, who should be doing what with whom and when. Um, And I think that's a big place where we can explore and explode possibilities. So you do a lot of activism in your life. I want to know what your simple self-care tips are for people that are doing that kind of work. Oh my God, self-care. That's the, that's the trickiest part. And I, I have to be honest, I don't have that down to a science. Um, I don't think from, any of us do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think especially recently I've been 
very, very close to burnout. Um, once I started grad school, because it was a, a change of pace and it was a very different system that I was going back into. Um, so I think recently I've actually been very much struggling with <laughs> the self-care. Um, <laughs> but, but for me, some things that have helped have been finding rituals that mm. help me feel connected to myself, help me get my mind off of work because I am, I consider myself a very ambitious person. I really love work. I love doing things, but it's not sustainable to be going, you know, 70 miles per hour, 24 seven. So for me, something as simple as cooking, uh, that's actually been a real huge thing recently. I've started cooking and documenting the food that I'm making and really being intentional about you know, these are the recipes I'm going to make for the week. And when I'm cooking, I can just think about cooking. I don't have to be thinking about a yes. paper. I don't have to be thinking about a march. I'm just making food. And it's a very, it's a very powerful thing to feel like, hey, I took these ingredients and I made a thing that will nourish my body and will help me keep moving. It'll help me do the work I need to do. And feeling connected to the process of food is I don't know. It's a very cool kind of novel experience that I hadn't had before. And I think part of it is because I'd ha I had and have been struggling with the self-care aspect. And now the food making has kind of come in and swept into that space to, to bring me some clarity. I love that because one of my closest friends was she was trying to help me to get out of my headspace sometimes because I have to stop what I'm doing to like take care of my family and cook for them. And it became sometimes like a chore. And she really like how you just described it is what she was trying to explain to me. Like you have to make it about nourishment and play. And she's and now I'm out of my head now when I'm cooking for my family. I so, so love that. What are you currently craving, Ida? Ooh, sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't gotten sleep snowed in? <laughs> I definitely got sleep snowed in, but I didn't get as much as I probably should have because I was up writing. Uh, I was actually writing a post about Fifty Shades of Grey since that's coming out this week. And um, But I'm craving, I'm craving that. I'm also craving macaroni cheese bites because I was just talking with one of my partners about it. And they're, you know, she's going to order some and I'm like, I can just taste them right now and I'm not making them for myself, but they're <laughs> going to happen. So I'm craving the, those are like very material, basic human needs right now. Um, <laughs> but beyond sort of the food and the, you know, I am a human, I have needs stuff. Um, I am craving more connection. Um, I feel like when I started graduate school, I started bunkering down and paring things down in my life a little bit and finding new community because I moved to Boston. I left, you know, the jobs that I'd been working for a few years. And so it was a lot of change and I had to pare down. And now I think I'm ready to start opening up again, especially in terms of friends and reconnecting with friendships that I wasn't able to nourish as much when I was in the middle of moving and starting school and all of these things. So I think craving reconnection and new connections is the non-physical <laughs> belly need that I have today. What has loving others taught you about yourself? Oh my God, it has taught me that I sometimes think I'm an impenetrable fortress and I need to stop that. <laughs> um, 
you know, I've been with one of my partners for over five years at this point. And the other person I've been dating for about a little bit over a year. Um, And it's been this constant growth process in so many different ways. But I think one of the biggest has been in allowing myself to be vulnerable um, and understanding the way that my mind works and processes emotion. I was I was raised an only child in a wonderful, loving family with a great grandma who was totally like a sibling more than a grandma. Um, (laughs) But, you know, as great as abuela was, I was still an only child. And so the way that I processed a lot of emotions and the way that I processed my thoughts was through journaling. And it was a very introspective kind of development. Um, And so I didn't have as much experience expressing emotions to other people without making it like a little prepackaged nugget and having it ready with like a little bow at the end for them. So (laughs) being messy in front of people, especially about my emotions, was difficult and new and something that I have grown into, Um, which, you know, it's, it's not that it's not still a struggle. It definitely is. But it's something that I've learned to deal with a lot better. Um, because of my relationships and because of the way that polyamory necessitates communication, if you're going to do it in an ethical, open way that honors people, because you can still do, you know, non-monogamy in a way that's kind of bad and hurts people more than it helps. So for me, having that communication, being really vulnerable and open with my emotions um, and understanding that not everyone works like that. Some people are very vulnerable from the get-go and they don't have the same hang-ups that maybe I do in terms of how do I process my emotions with you? So understanding myself, but also understanding then how do I work with other people who function very differently than I do? So that's been a huge, a huge thing for me. I think I read somewhere that you're starting a new video series on non-monogamy. Is that true? I am. I am. That's been slightly pushed on the back burner for a little bit. Uh, I had the idea late last year, and I don't remember what the catalyst was. I feel like I was just hearing a lot about non-monogamy, and it was all white people. And I was like, that's (laughs) nice, but can we not do that again? Um, (laughs) And again. (laughs) Yeah, I see the same conversations. It's the same people. Um, Part of of the catalyst really was that it wasn't just the same people talking about it, but that attention just was never paid to issues of race or class or all these different intersections that I think are very important. So I heard a lot about queerness. I did hear about sort of gender sometimes, and there were some conversations that were very important being had, but I feel like there's still a lot of dialogue missing. Um, and so I want to put my put my hat in the ring there and start bridging that gap and start filling that space with some conversation. And I don't want it to just be me, but you know, I, we got to start somewhere. So my hope is that I will start this project and then it'll expand to have more voices and particularly people of color. Cause it's very easy to say, Oh, who are the big names that I have access to? I can bring so-and-so and so-and-so onto the show and have a video with them. And that's great and lovely, but they're the same person that's been profiled on like 25 articles about non-monogamy. So who are the voices that we're not hearing? Who are the perspectives? You know, what are the perspectives that are missing? So that's, that's a little bit on the back burner because I want to be able to put out a good product and I want it to be worthwhile. I don't want to just like 
tape something in my room at five in the morning <laughs> randomly one day. Um, and also partly it's been a little bit on the back burner because I don't want to just do it myself. My two partners um, have agreed to be involved and I want it to be at a good time for all of us. So hopefully sometime this spring uh, we'll get that ball rolling. But you know, if if it doesn't happen immediately, no worries. It is coming. I don't really forget projects. <laughs> I have a really good memory. So if something hasn't happened, it's because it's still marinating. Yeah, no, that's so true because this podcast was an idea like in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> Who are some of your biggest inspirations and why? Who are my biggest inspirations? It's interesting because I feel like this question is always like, who are your heroes? And I'm like, I don't feel like I have heroes because <laughs> I I like people for different things and I don't see people as monoliths. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm always like, oh, a little bit of this and a dash of this other person and a little like take a little bit of this other one. Um hmm. So what are I'm those like, dashes and bits? <laughs> what are the dashes and bits? Um <laughs> The folks who work um, with Sister Song, uh, Reproductive Justice Collective, they're fantastic. And I feel like they've done so much work around reproductive justice and communities of color that I think cr cross cuts a lot of different issues, um, especially when I was doing work around HIV. You know, the dialogue of reproductive justice was not always heard in all the HIV spaces. So having communities and organizations like Sister, Sister Song and Sister Love that were bringing in that perspective and doing really innovative work, like, I don't remember which, I think it was Sister Love. Um, they do essentially sort of kind of like sex toy parties or like sexy parties for people to learn about HIV um, and specifically for African-American women. And that's a kind of innovative way of reaching a community that you wouldn't just find in your run-of-the-mill nonprofit. And the fact that they're working on innovative ways to protect their communities and to educate them and to get them excited, not just with messages of, oh, HIV is bad and it'll be so sad if you have it, but hey, look at all the ways that you can make sex fun. Look at all the ways that you can make sex pleasurable and safe or safer. Um, and so, you know, that entire world that they've created around HIV prevention, reproductive justice and all that, I think is just fantastic. Um, I would be remiss to, again, mention, you know, not mention the folks at the Women of Color Sexual Health Network and the CSPH. I try, you know, I try to work with people that nourish me and inspire me. And folks in those two communities are people that I admire and really, really appreciate, not just because of the work that they do, but the attitudes that they have toward the work. It's mm. not something that they do because it makes them money. It's not something that they do just because they have nothing better to do. It's something that they do because they care and they have passion and they're willing to collaborate and work with other people to make their visions come true and that their visions are very expansive. It's not just about helping one community or tackling one issue. Both of those groups really look at the intersections of, you know, whether it's sexuality and race or what have you. Um, and, you know, the, I really, I think, focus a lot on the heroes and the people that I have around me rather than 
oh, this ancient figure from history is so inspiring. And I remember I'm like, I, I didn't know you. Like, maybe there's this great thing about you. But if I have a living, breathing human that also exemplifies, you know, honor and dignity and courage and hard work, I'm going to have a much, a much closer emotional connection to them. Um, and I feel like that's also fantastic because then I can celebrate them while they're here instead of celebrating someone who's already gone. Um, but, you know, honoring our ancestors and honoring our elders is also really important. So not to make it sound like, <laughs> like <laughs> I'm dissing on history, but I, I feel like it, so often we look toward the past for heroes yeah. when we have heroes living around us every day. So, mm -hmm. What's your advice to people who are trying to live their dreams and fulfill their passions? Get clarity on what your passions are. Sometimes we have passions or have dreams that have been handed to us and we haven't really examined them to see if they're actually what we want. And I would also advise that you check in with yourself every so often, whether it's, you know, if you're type A like me, maybe it's like a six month check in every six months or it's something a little bit more sporadic. Um, just check to make sure that you are on an authentic path for yourself. Often we can get stuck in a path or we can start a job and continue on and, you know, 10 years down the line, figure out that we're not actually happy. We haven't been happy for a while. We just didn't realize it, didn't check in with ourselves. So gaining clarity and checking in on that clarity throughout. Um, I think a lot of people feel like, if they start a project, they must finish it. If they devote themselves to something, they must continue, especially if they've already put in a lot of effort, um, that whole, you know, sunk cost thing. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think it's more important to get out if something is not fulfilling and if it's not worth your time anymore. Um, so another piece that I would <laughs> advise people to do is learn how to say no <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and get practice uh, saying no to people and not just automatically going for every opportunity, especially for people who are very ambitious or people who really just love helping others. That's such an automatic response of, yes, I'll help you. Yes, I'll do this. Yes, I'll do that. And sometimes we don't put our energies where they're most useful and we burn ourselves out too soon. So practice saying no, check in about <laughs> your intentions when you do say yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and sort of, it's a lot of self-awareness, essentially, just being aware of what you want, where you're going, what you're doing, and thinking of it as an evolving process, not a, well, I checked in with myself five years ago, that was it. <laughs> Speaking of self-awareness, what reminds you of who you truly are? Hmm. Looking at my journals. <laughs> um, I've been journaling since I was six. And Holy. <laughs> wow. there have been a lot of changes. There have been a lot of changes since I was six years old. I am proud to say. Do I you have them to... all? I have them all. Oh, wow. You don't burn any uh, of them or get rid of them? <laughs> nope. They're all in my closet right now. Um, <laughs> okay, embarrassing... <I'm> nice. <laughs> Yeah, Embarrassing stuff and all. Wow, um, so, that's so awesome. So I, think, <laughs> so I think that really reminds me of who I am by showing me where I've been. And honestly, part of that really keeps me humble. Um, I've seen things that I wrote when I was in fifth grade or ninth grade, and I've found patterns that, 
you know, I didn't realize at the time, I feel like I wrote a lot about weight and I didn't, you know, I didn't realize I didn't think, oh yes, I have like issues or questions around my weight until I read through my journals once. I was like, wow, that is, that is a lot of comments about how much you weigh and how you want to lose weight. Um, so it reminds me of where I've been and kind of what patterns have emerged in my life. And furthermore, it just keeps me humble because it shows me how dumb <laughs> I've been. I was like, wow, that that thing you said, why did you say that? Or, you know, why did you use this oppressive language like it was nobody's business that you clearly didn't know any better? And I think that, honestly, that helps me empathize with people who still don't get it or still mm. are using language that is oppressive or don't really understand why racism is still a problem in this country. And that helps me do my work. It helps me have more compassion um, when I when I call people out or when I try to work with others to make things better or safer or more like culturally sensitive. Yeah. Um, it helps to remind myself that, hey, you didn't get it at one point. You really didn't get it. So how did you move past that? And remember that you had to do some work. So you can't expect someone to completely change their life around and change their work because you had a thought or a feeling that you shared with them on Facebook. That's awesome. That really is to like be able to go back and see where you didn't quite get it and that that helps you not be on that high horse that a lot of people are on and, you know, pointing fingers. That's awesome. For, I'd like for you to talk a little bit more about um, body positivity, because I know that's some a place where you've done some work, too, as well. Yeah. Um, like I said a little bit earlier, you know, I didn't realize that I I wrote so much about weight and it, it was kind of heartbreaking to look back on it. Um, back in college, I was talking with some friends and I think it's for the first time. I had open conversations with folks that identified as having an eating disorder or some sort of disordered eating. And I started examining my own life and I was like, did I, did I have disordered eating? Did I have unhealthy patterns? And for a little while I was kind of trying to figure that out and seeing if I sort of, should I label myself with this? Should I not? And eventually I just decided to discard that entire conversation with myself. I was like, I don't need to label myself with this right now. It's not useful. Mm -hmm. uh, what I do want to acknowledge is that there was a pattern and that it was something that was not the most helpful thing. Um, and I think it just takes a lot of emotional and physical energy to keep up with, you know, hating oneself or hating or questioning one's body and one's worth. So for that reason, and for the reason of, you know, trying to create a culture that has more energy to do positive change, um, I think it's really important that we look at how we talk about bodies and what kind of bodies we hold as cultural standards of beauty. Um, not just because body positivity is a weight thing, it very much gets framed as that, but I think body positivity also relates to race, it relates to color, it relates to what hair we find acceptable where and what does it look like. And body positivity to me doesn't just mean, oh, it's okay to be whatever size you are, celebrate it. It means, okay, let's, let's do that, that's great, what are the messages that we're sending about bodies? How can we stop some of the negative messaging? How can we teach people at a younger age, not just girls, but everyone at a younger age, 
to appreciate bodies? What are ways that we can sort of package this message and talk about human worth in a way that appreciates the human form, but also doesn't essentialize it? So, you know, in terms of body positive work, I think I haven't done projects specifically on it, but I've tried to have that be part of my general work whenever I do work. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that in my own journey has been changing my own standards of what I consider attractive. And, you know, oddly enough, Tumblr, again, going back to the theme of the internet, uh, being able to curate a stream of content for myself Mm -hmm. and really boil that down has been helpful because I've been able to find blogs or find images of people that look like me, of people that have bodies like mine, of people of the same culture as mine, and being able to tailor that so I get that fairly constantly has helped counteract media messages. And I actually had a really funny moment once where uh, I was shopping online and I usually go to the plus size sections. I have them bookmarked or I just like automatically go to them. And I accidentally went to the regular and I was just shocked by the images. I was like, oh, these people are very skinny. I, <laughs> I forgot that people were this skinny sometimes. <laughs> I was, you know, so in my own world kind of. And I had been able to retrain my brain so successfully that I forgot. <laughs> I literally forgot what Photoshop tricks were being done on these websites. Um, and that's when I, when I realized, oh, this is actually working. I'm actually surprised when I see these messages again because I've been counteracting them so effectively. So, you know, I think part of doing this work is not just telling other people to do it. It's how do you do this in your own life? How do you question your own values of, you know, what bodies are acceptable and how do you start changing your own perspective? That's crazy. <laughs> What's one thing that's working really well in your life right now? Hmm, what is one thing that is working really well for me right now? Because I kind of just want to say cooking. <laughs> you <laughs> so can. I'm like, yes, I am doing that. You know, I'll say that. I'll say that cooking is going really well for me right now. Um, partly because I realized that I was trying to push myself into a box of how cooking was supposed to happen. And it wasn't working. And so I was delaying doing cooking because it just, you know, I felt like I have to go to the store. I have to pick stuff out. I have to bring it back, blah, blah, blah. And I don't have a car and public transportation in Boston is much better than it is in Providence uh, when I was living in Rhode Island, but it's still not the most time efficient for certain things I have to do. And so I realized, okay, cooking (laughs) as it is prescribed societally is not working. How (laughs) do I fix this? What do I do? And so I actually sprung to, um, to, you know, get an account on one of these services that delivers groceries which felt like a splurge. It felt like, wow, what are you doing? This is so fancy. (laughs) Why are you like getting your groceries delivered? You can just go get them yourself. But, you know, I just had to get rid of that mindset and reframe it for myself and instead think, look, you've been blocked from doing this thing that you know is going to be important and helpful for your emotional, physical, you know, well-being. What are the things that are in your way? It's transportation and it's time. How can you get rid of those obstacles? Get this membership, order your groceries, they'll come to your house. 
So it was, it was this like problem solving process. Um, and now I get my groceries and it's not, you know, horrible, horribly expensive. And it actually is saving me money because I'm not eating out as much at, you know, getting takeout and I'm getting food that is healthier. I'm getting a lot more vegetables. I'm eating a lot more vegetarian, uh, food, which makes my partners happy because one of them is vegan and the other is vegetarian. So, you know, I, I just had to look at what's blocking me from achieving this and, how can we work around it and reframe it so that it makes me feel good? Um, so cooking, I am just very excited that it's happening and I'm learning <laughs> and I get to talk to my family about it. So that's also been a source of connection Ooh. because they've been, it's not that they've been distant, but our relationship has changed a lot since I moved away for college in 2007 and it has been strained in part because of my work in sexuality, in part because of the identities that I've sometimes shared with them, but sometimes they're still in denial about. Um, and the fact that I can share something, I'm keeping like a little side blog for my cooking adventures, and I've shared that with them. I get to ask them for recipes from home. I get to ask them for tips on how to cook certain foods. And it's been a source of connection that I think was also missing. Um for for a lot of Latino folks, and I think you'd probably agree with me on this, family is really important. Yes. And family can be defined in a lot of ways, but biological family and sort of family that you are raised with, whether that's, you know, a nuclear family or like all the aunts and uncles, it's very important. And I don't mm -hmm. think I had realized that till probably the last year. I knew I was close to my family and I knew that our relationship had changed once I went to college because I was trying to be independent and do my own thing and explore my life in ways that were freeing. Um, but not until I went to an event where they showed a video about queer Latinos talking about their family or the ways that they were disconnected from their family did I realize that it was such a big deal. and. The, the way that it was framed that helped me understand that was, um, and I, I'm not going to quote it because I can't remember, but basically the idea is that if you are growing up in a culture where family is the unit of measurement, mm -hmm. the unit of measurement is not the individual, it's not, yeah. you know, you for yourself, it's family. If that nucleus, if that core is rejecting you and you don't feel connected to it, that like shatters everything. If the, if the most basic unit of measurement is not there for you, or if you feel like it's broken, or if you feel like you can't connect to it, it can be a huge damaging thing. And I just started bawling when I was watching this video. Cause I was like, Oh, I, I can imagine. <laughs> That's so true. Um, Cause my family, you know, while they're very supportive about certain things, not very excited about, my own identities, the fact that I'm poly, the fact that I'm queer, they've started, you know, they've warmed up to the sexuality work, but not the personal life. Um, so being able to reconnect through food and find ways of bridging that gap a little bit has been, has been fantastic. And I'm really excited that that's happening. That sounds like it's working more than really well. That just sounds so kick-ass. I love it. I want you to tell the listeners what's next for your work. Mm. Well, the video series on non-monogamy, that is definitely something I want to get off the ground. The other pieces, you know, I'm like a semester, two semesters almost into my master's degree in social work. 
So I'm excited to see where that takes me next year. We have a different field placement and all these different sort of classes and activities. Um, and so after that, I'm really excited to work more on the therapy side of things. I've been doing a lot of advocacy and education, and I don't want to let that go. That is my passion more so than therapy. But I do want to be able to provide therapeutic services to people who are currently marginalized by the systems that we have in place. So that pretty much means communities of color that mean, or, you know, with a focus on Latinos, as well as folks who are poly or kinky or non-monogamous in other ways or anything that makes someone feel uncomfortable talking to a provider. Uh, otherwise, uh, I want to really beef that up and be able to be a resource. Um, the other piece that I'm excited about is I want to, get writing. Uh, I feel like I stopped writing while I was working these past three, three and a half years. And I've started writing more just by virtue of being in school again, but also because I've reconnected to my writing uh, in a way that is helping me be, you know, put stuff out there more frequently. So I'm excited to see what that looks like. And one of the things that I'm currently working on with the Women of Color Sexual Health Network is hopefully an anthology. So that is so in its baby stages. I can't really give too many details, but, you know, coming soon to a world near you, there will be an anthology, whatever that ends up looking like and however we make it happen, it's going to happen. So I'm very excited to have a book about sexuality, about women of color in the field by women of color in the field. So that's kind of one of the beacons that is making me really excited about the future. Where can the listeners find you online? Everywhere. <laughs> uh, I'm really That's literally terrifying. true. Yeah, it's terrifying <laughs> how easy it is to find me online. Um, but that's cool. I've made it that way. You know, that's it's on purpose. Um, you can find me on Twitter as Neuron Bomb. And literally, if you just Google my name, <laughs> uh, you will find me. I'm the only person with my name thus far. So if you look up Aida Mandule or Neuron Bomb, you'll find me. Sex is a very complex subject <laughs> that we should always talk more about. Love is a very powerful and sometimes terrifying experience that not everyone experiences in the same way. And I think a lot of people need to expand their minds about. Joy is Something that is very important to me in my life, and I hope that all the listeners can experience soon. Well, you've brought so much joy. I have the biggest smile on my face right now from talking to you for this last hour. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Sex, Love, Joy. For more interviews like this one and my other work, please visit sexlovejoy.com. I hope that listening to today's guests talk about living their truths helps you in your quest to do the same. Remember, thriving ain't easy, but adding a little sex, love, joy to your day makes the living a whole lot juicier.